Hi folks, Gary Kelly here and today I'm delighted that we have our very first guest on Gary Talks. It's Kenny Deary, CEO of Galway Chamber. And here Kenny talks about the effects the coronavirus has had on businesses in Galway and indeed Ireland. The difference between the 2008 financial crisis and today's situation. The future of brick and mortar retailers. The future of hospitality and tourism. What industries he expects to recover early the future of Irish business itself, and we even talk about US President Donald Trump. It's a great interview. It gives lots of great insights and food for thought. So sit back, relax, and I hope you really get a lot out of the following conversation. This is a GK Media Podcast. Kenny Deary, CEO of Galway Chamber, thanks for joining us today. No problem, Gary. My pleasure. Now, this is something that I came across from Kyo Accountancy here in Galway. And I said, after already one month, one third of companies have cash flow problems. One fifth are deferring investments and have frozen recruitment. One third have no business continuity plan in place. So much has happened, Kenny, in just really the last four weeks in Ireland. Absolutely. I think in February, if we were having this conversation, we'd be talking about traffic and transport and those sort of logistical issues that were happening us in Galway. And that's like a bygone era now. Um, the movement and the conversation really has moved to cash flow and uh, survival and, and getting to a period of stability uh, for many businesses. And, th- and that's difficult in itself, uh, trying to get some businesses to a point of stable and managing their costs. And now when we think there's a certain amount of that uh, in place, it's it's the conversation is moving to, well, uh, how long will this go on for and what will recovery look like? And uh, that's a challenge because it's going to be very different for, for different people, But Gary. But certainly there will be many books written on, on this period of time and the transition that has happened in a month has been phenomenal. I remember a few weeks ago we were still carrying out video shoots and we had already incorporated social distancing and sanitization and all that, but we didn't think it had come to the extent of the restrictions that are in place today, which of course we don't know how long they will go on for. But can you describe really with your ear to the ground, because you would represent and be a voice for a lot of businesses in Galway and the surrounding areas of the West of Ireland, what has sort of been the one-on-one conversations that people have had with you? It's very interesting because different different businesses are impacted, as we know, in different ways. So if we look at the sectors that are still open, those that are deemed essential services, and uh, we have quite a cohort of, of those in Galway City and County, let's say in the med tech space, in the development space, they have had to totally transform a lot of their work practices in terms of physical spacing and this whole piece of physical spacing and making sure that the workspace and the engagement areas, canteens, corridors, toilets, all that, that there are protocols built around how people can can now use those spaces. It's all a lot of practical stuff, but a lot of companies have had to spend quite a bit of time and energy making sure they're adhering to the guidelines. If you're talking about those where there's there's large teams maybe in clean rooms, it's splitting them up into team A and team B because there's the potential that if someone in a particular team or subsection of a team showed symptoms, well, then that whole team would have to be stood down. So how do you manage that to ensure, number one, that do your best to make sure that doesn't happen? If it does, that the health and well-being of those in that team are protected and, and they all go and isolate? And then how do you still have a business continuity scenario? There are real challenges that some of the HR and operations teams of some of our bigger employers have had to grapple with. I think if you're looking at the likes of retail, as an example, 
Um, and it was very interesting. I was on, on some calls this week with retailers, some of whom had, um, let's say, beauty products was one of their big areas where their turnover accrued from. And if you imagine the scene walking into a department store or walking into a retailer that serves beauty, there's generally a touch-up area. There's an area where samples can be trialed. There's an area where certain cosmetics can be applied to the face of customers by staff. And how does that happen now in a socially distanced world when they reopen? So retailers are having to totally look at the design and the layout of their stores and how that interface of customer sampling can continue into the future or can it? Uh, if you look at the likes of co-working spaces and even our colleagues in the likes of Portershed and Goa Technology Centre, which were thriving facilities and were at full capacity, you know, they now have to re-examine the layout of their spaces in terms of social distancing. So I think there's there are many challenges across sectors. The big one is the social distancing point of view. So you might have a huge office space, but yet there may only be certain limitations around the sizes of toilets or shared spaces or canteens or kitchens. So many of those companies are just saying, listen, we need to close these down and try and come up with other alternatives. So, you know, there are so many scenarios, um, Gary, and I think that's what's what's really going to be tricky and the devil will be in the detail in terms of looking at how some of these recover and reopen. There's a, a whole range of conversations to happen and from sector to sector, the challenges will be different. But if you had anyone come up to you all doom and gloom saying we're finished, Kenny, we're, we're done and dusted, like this is a disaster. Yeah, for yeah we certainly have. And, and I think we, we've had those direct conversations and we've also got that feedback from our engagement and, and surveys. Over the last three weeks, we've surveyed about 310 businesses in Galway City and County. And from those, about 35% were coming back in that, in some shape or form in that conversation saying, listen, I, I can't, I'm not going to be able to reopen the doors. I'm not going to be able to go on if if things don't change. And some of those conversations still haven't improved. I think some businesses are seeing a little bit of hope from, you know, who, who would have thought we'd see a day where the local authority is deferring rates and we're looking for a lot more in that, where revenue are asking people to file but defer the payments, where the banks are deferring loan facilities. So some businesses that were close to the brink or didn't have a huge result are saying, God, well, when we see these type of big institutions making these big gestures, then maybe there is a glimmer of hope, but we need more and we need it in a certain way. But without a doubt, Gary, there's there's a, a huge concern for some businesses who maybe are, there's a number of, of scenarios here. One is you could have a certain business owner who has been in business for 30, 40 years, has been very proud of what they've done, but doesn't really have the energy or the enthusiasm to turn around and try and restart and and reignite a business again. And there is a frustration there. And from some others, they could be new enough businesses who haven't really been impacted by a recession of this size and scale before, and they're not quite sure how to deal with it. And I think they're the uh, scenarios that the role of the likes of ourselves in Chamber, the likes of the local enterprise office and many of the supports, we have a piece of work to do there to try and work with those businesses and, and give them as much hope as we can. But but yes, certainly the landscape has changed. We've seen some big name announcements of people entering uh, schemes of arrangement or liquidators being appointed. We've seen some businesses already where receivers have been appointed. And, and I think that's going to continue there without a doubt will will be more of those and that's 
the, I think the personal story for those families and those individuals is the really, really tough bit. Uh, ironically, the building will be bought and someone else will reinvent it in time. But this really is a story in many cases behind every business. There's a family, there's someone who has worked very hard to get that there and there are many employees. And that's the real the real tough bit to all of this. A couple of points there, Kenny. I mean, the deferrals on payments is great, but it is really just kicking the ball down the road for the time being. And really, I suppose a lot of businesses have to reinvent themselves and it's hard to do that if you know, you've had a business for 40, 50 years and you're worn out now. Going back to the likes of retailers who are liquidating at the moment, let's take Debenhams, for example. They would have been a big business in Galway. They would have taken over from Roach's stores back in around 2005, 2006. But being honest, do you think that that building will just actually end up an empty building or it'll just have the likes of Marks and Spencers there? Because if you walk down Galway now and the economy was doing reasonably well January 2020, but if you walk down Galway City, as much as we love the city, there is a lot of empty, vacant buildings, including Taft's, where Una Taft had her business, and that's right in the city centre. Do you fear that we're actually going to see a lot of empty buildings? I think there's a real risk of that if this coming period of six to 12 months isn't managed right. And this is about more than six to 12 months. I think the the lag effect of this will last a few years, Gary. And I think at the risk of being pessimistic, but to go back to your core point around, you know, will there be a lot of empty buildings? I had um, the pleasure of being in Buenos Aires over New Year for a couple of days. And on the high street, there was one massive what looked like a department store in a fantastic location and it was empty and I was asking our local hotel manager what is the story with that building is it under renovation and he said oh it never reopened after the recession and that was the Argentinian recession going back nearly a decade ago Uh, so you know that's an example of where I suppose a serious recession and recovery were mismanaged in our case if you look at the likes of Debenhams for example and that that complex it's in Debenhams is an anchor tenant so without a doubt there's going to be a serious impact on the other retailers surrounding it you know there is a Marks and Spencers there Uh, they have a footprint maybe the likes of them will look at increasing their size I'm sure there's a conversation on between the centre management and them but without a doubt you've highlighted there are other buildings on the high street that are empty I think also there's a there's a challenge in terms of the high street you know, in, in Galway, we have some brand names, the likes of McCambridge's and the treasure chest that are iconic Galway businesses. And sometimes there's a challenge when you have a proliferation of others in the likes of phone shops and two euro shops. So adding to the economy themselves, um, they're not core businesses and, and they can pull out overnight, you know, with a lot of those with vacant properties and not as many indigenous local Galway brand names on the high street, then you certainly do have a concern for for the long-term nature of what retail will be like. And I think, you know, there's a lot, even today we're promoting uh, the businesses that are open with their online offerings. And online is great. However, in certainly in the retail space, those who will remain and those who will reinvent themselves and those who will be back open again in six months time have a piece of work to do to try and compete with online. Because the, one of the things that this COVID-19 scenario and the lockdown particularly has caused us all to do, and I see with my own parents who are in the early 70s bracket and would have, wouldn't have had much futhern with online and online shopping. They've now moved to it. So it's moved a whole cohort of customer base who couldn't get out over the last few weeks to take the step to go online. 
And while great now in terms of serving the needs now, that's going to even make it harder for retail businesses. So I think there's a real sense that we need to do more to try and bring those businesses along with us. I know Enterprise Ireland today is rolling out an investment program for retailers who have 10 or more staff, and it's sizable enough co-funding in terms of trying to create an online shop and really, really get with the races in the same way as the Amazons of this world are are driving trade right around the world. So without a doubt, I think the core answer to your, your question is, where we will have buildings now becoming vacant, there's a serious role, a serious role for the local authorities, for us in the business sector, to try and get replacements for those tenants. Because a building that lies idle, as we know, around town, it does a number of things. From a public realm point of view, it looks abysmal, but equally it kills the heart of, of a retail trade and, and drawing people into the city centre. And we know before this, with the traffic challenges. Some people were saying anecdotally, well, listen, it was easier to go to centres and other locations around the peripheries of other cities because the motorway was getting them there quicker. However, they were coming into Galway for certain brands being the Ankerton and drawing people in. So we do have a concern and I would have a concern that, you know, the more of those we lose, the harder it will be to draw people into the city centre, which is a pity. So is the future online? It's a blend. Um, I don't think we're ever going to be able to uh, replace that rich experience of walking down Shop Street on a Saturday morning and being able to go to your cheesemongers and get the experience of the market and walk in and out of shops and, and be able to engage with people. But I think those retailers for their survival also needs to have a serious back end online presence that's functioning. And that when they're asleep and in their beds at night, someone somewhere is still ordering product from them. Um, I remember a very traditional business that went online. It was a solicitor's firm in the Northwest and engaging with the owner of it one day in my previous career in the bank. And she spoke to me and she said, Kenny, there's nothing more satisfying than waking up in the morning and seeing that your phone has pinged about eight times during the night and there are orders and requests for your product and sales gone through while you slept. And I think from a retail point of view, and from many businesses um, who have the ability to sell some aspect of their services or their business online, we're beheld now to use the supports that are there through the local enterprise office and through others to actually develop that back end so that when your doors are open, you can sell from both sides. But when your doors are closed, your business is still transacting. Yeah, that's a good point. And I suppose it is the dream that you, you sleep at night and your business is still making money for you. There are conversations taking place though at the moment, and it even kind of reverts to what we were talking about a few moments ago, where people who have offices are now realizing that their business can still operate without having a fancy office and the, the newest of technology and the best of modern furniture. And even a recent survey, which was on Sky News today, said only 9% of people want to return to what was considered normal after this is all over. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, Paddy McDermott, who's a, a member of Chamber, released a piece on LinkedIn this morning, and it's a small piece talking about change and embracing change, and that there is a very real risk that we could return to normal quickly after this. But then the conversation moved to, well, what was normal and did we really, really want and enjoy normal? And did normal mean that you were getting up at six in the morning to drop kids potentially to a crash or to another family member to sit in traffic for an hour to get into a location to park to then get to work and where the best of your energy has nearly already been expelled throughout the day? Uh, so there's there's a real valid point to what you say, Gary. And I think we all as businesses and as business leaders have a role to embrace the bits of the learnings over these few weeks 
and continue with the good bits. I know some employers tell me that they know more about what their teams are doing now than they ever did before because they're having daily Zoom calls and they're able to get an update from each member of the team, which is really rich because everyone has the same size box and everyone has to contribute into the meetings, whereby in the traditional office environment, that just wouldn't happen. It'd be one key person who would be giving you feedback on particular issues and you'd be darting out the door because you were racing to a meeting, whereby now, you know, you you have the quality time to spend with each of your team. So I think there is a richness from this time that certainly has to be brought forward, but also there's nothing better than sitting around a table and as a team coming together and talking, collaborating, brainstorming. I think it's a bit of both, really. And I remember in my in my previous life in AIB, we had just moved to this way in, in terms of the head office, had just moved to this way of doing business where they'd moved out to a new building in Leopardstown. And rather than needing 100% of the space that they felt they'd need for the numbers of staff, they just built a building on the basis of 70% of the space so that it would be efficient, it would be agile, and people, different teams selected one or two core days a week that they would need to be in. Apart from that, they worked remotely. And while there was an initial discomfort around it, it works brilliantly now and people love the opportunity to be able to work remotely, be creative, dial in where they need, but yet come together. And I think it's a blended option of the work that the likes of Tracy Kyo and many have been doing in Grow Remote, that even if you have some companies in Galway who have teams traveling in, and I remember one event that I was at with Uzeras Nagelthakta, it was focusing on the GTEC out in Carrow. And I, I think that Sean O'Donnell out there had charted that there were about 220 people traveling in from uh, the Carrow area each day into Galway. And some of those were all working in the one company, some were scattered around. And the whole idea that if pockets of those people could be scattered to different co-working spaces in the Gaeltacht or on the periphery of the city, the impact it would have on their lives and indeed their, their families as well. So I think once we come back from this, there'll be a new normal. And the new normal won't be everyone sitting in traffic, driving into the city to park, to get to an office for nine in the morning. A richness from this time has also been been found and uh, it'll be a blended bow. It'll be a blended option, I think. I suppose one of the problems that our clients have said who would be employers is when our staff work from home, we don't know if they're working at all. We can't prove it. And I often say that maybe think of when you pay a staff member, it's for the jobs that they get done as opposed to the physical hours that they work. But what would you say to someone who's very traditional in, you know, I pay Joe Bloggs for working nine to five, you know, I pay him X amount per hour, who don't want to embrace this whole thing of allowing people to work remotely? I think some people have this notion that someone's not working if they're not physically present in front of you and you can't see them beavering away on their computer. What many of those employers don't realize, and there's data and a good bit of data behind those, is many of those staff that you think are working away on your report or whatever else may be doing online shopping, maybe messaging and emailing friends, and the productivity isn't what you think it is just because you see them physically there. I think the research is already there and well produced by many of the tech companies that says that if you empower your staff, you trust your staff, and you give them the workload that you want them to do and you trust them to do it in an environment that's suitable for them, they'll not only do it, they'll do it better, they'll do it quicker and they'll give a lot more. And I think if you look at the roles, the likes of the Googles of this world, now I know if you're talking to a very traditional employer and you start talking about Google, they may flick their eyes to heaven and say that fellow's lost the plot. But these are big companies that pay considerable salaries to staff. And I think if they're in a position to trust that that staff member, Johnny or Mary at home, 
I'm trusting them to do what it is that I'm asking them to do. And I know because this is proven, they've come back, they've given not just what I wanted, they've done it better, they've done it more creatively. And I see it even, Gary, with my own team now in Chamber, we've had to move to a very agile way of doing things. And Good Friday last week was a day that typically the office would be closed. And yet my team and I were together in calls twice through the day, trying to get some comms out that were really important and we felt was important to membership over the weekend. If it was a different working environment, you know, people would have clocked off and left on a Thursday evening. And I'm not saying that we wouldn't have done stuff on Friday, but we wouldn't have had the ability to use the likes of Zoom to get what we did done on a good Friday. So I think we just have to have trust in our teams, empower people, and you'll be very surprised by the richness that comes back. And I suppose from this as well, you yourselves have gotten very proactive in your comms because now you're running webinars practically on a daily basis for members of the chamber. Yes. um, And that's again a new world. Like our focus previous to this, Gary, was looking at, okay, what are the events? So we had a number of core staple events that we delivered through the year and the focus was on those. It was physical lunches. It was on business after hours events, business before hours, certain meetups. Um, we have a, our AGM this month supposed to be now deferred there was a new president coming in there was going to be a new president's breakfast uh, we have our business awards at the year end and there was a whole plethora of touch points through the year and that was our job of work in terms of the physical event delivery side there, there are many other parts all that for the moment is up in the air I'm looking at the prospect of a digital lunch and what that might look like. We are building out webinars. In the first two weeks of this crisis, we had 23, I think it was, webinars. Seven of those were built by ourselves in partnership with others. I know you were involved in in one of those. Um, Then there was another cohort of 16 that we shared or collaborated in some shape or form, or our technology was used to help others with webinars. This week, another six have been dropped, including one today. Next week, we have another five. And I think what we're, we're trying to do, Gary, is bring a bit of thought leadership to it in terms of what are the areas we think people are going to need help. So there's a lot of organizations with a huge amount of content on COVID-19. And as we've seen Wednesday morning, there was so much up-to-date information, it was great. And another announcement dropped from Minister of Finance, Pascal Donoghue, and his colleagues on Wednesday lunchtime, and all that content became irrelevant. And you start from scratch again, because there were a whole range of different tiers brought into the supports. Um, so you're constantly churning in terms of that core information. But then what are the other pieces of information that people need to know how to do. So for example, you know, part of our our webinars have been around helping people build out marketing strategies in difficult times, podcasting, um, you know, part of it was around digital content. And equally next week, we're focusing on a webinar on workouts at home and, and workouts for your staff in their disparate locations. So it ranges from the very serious heavy content to very relevant HR content in terms of navigating those employee-employer relationships to the health and well-being of our staff. And I think that's one bit that's coming through quite a lot and, and something we probably haven't got to grips with as much as we should have yet, Gary, and it's around the whole mindfulness and well-being of our teams. Some are lucky in that they're living at home with their families, though they might say they're not lucky if there's kids and they're there all the time and they mightn't be used to that, but they are. Uh, We have other team members who are on their own in an apartment, in a building where they may not have known their neighbours before. And I believe we have a responsibility when we're looking at our staff to ensure that as much content can get out as possible. Some on the corporate side, 
some around their own HR practices, but some about their own mind and well-being, because this certainly is going to be a journey. And by the looks of things in terms of continuing restrictions, it's not going to be over for a while yet. You had mentioned working in AIB. So you're involved in banking when the big crisis hit Ireland in around 2008. Compare then to now, Kenny. People at that stage always focused on the Lehman Brothers collapse and that that was the the central tipping point in terms of the crisis at that stage. But in the run up to that, there was a good three to four months of indications that things were going askew. After the Lehman Brothers, there was still a period where some contracts still completed, some businesses still launched. You know, people felt it to be a flash in the pan. The depth of and the scale of the problem hadn't been felt. So as a result, there wasn't a single trigger, so to speak, that caused a whole range of issues. So people had time to deal with matters. I think the the banks, even though uh, there were many struggles and many, many, many difficult conversations and many difficult meetings, there was more time to deal with it. We were at a scenario where in the lead up to St. Patrick's Day, I actually was on my way to Washington and in Washington when the the announcements began uh, four weeks ago in terms of, you know, we're going to restrictions. The wording of lockdown wasn't used because the T-shirt very rightly said, what does a lockdown mean? And it means different things in different places. But it was like the flick of a switch. And I think that's the big difference between then and now. To be fair, the engagement with the banks, there is a willingness from the staff and the executives in there to say, listen, we, we appreciate we need to support business, but they really haven't had the time they needed to build out the systems and build out the processes to try and follow through on that. And I think that's where there's going to be challenges. Um, the lag effect to this, some sectors are saying there'll be a quick bounce back, but it's very hard to see. Uh, in certain sectors, there may be, but there'll be a considerable lag to what's happened here. And I think particularly the bank conversations with the tourism, the hospitality, the pubs, they're going to be very different this time. Because even when the recession came and after the Lehman Brothers collapsed, weddings still happened. You know, funerals still happened in terms of the function, the wake and all that came with it. Restaurants were still open. Things contracted and businesses went out of business over a gradual period of time, but they were still open and trading. The challenge with this is there was a flick of a switch and there was an absolute close down. The till stopped ringing immediately. And with the fact that there's no wind in sight, it's very hard to plan around for certain sectors of industry. And I think that's the really, really difficult bit between then and now. Uh, you know, I remember being part of and some friends getting married in 2009 and 2010, and there were still your weddings with three and 400 people at them. We're at a point here now where that's not happened. We know from the hotels and from those in the hospitality and the event space, there's just nothing. And there's an optimism that there might be something by June or July, but then someone else says it could be September and someone else says really 2020 is, is knocked out. So from a provisioning and a financial point of view, a lot of those businesses are having to say, well, we don't know what, what income there will be in 2020. Will there be 20 or 30 percent of what we were hoping for? This is the worst time of the year that for the hospitality industry, it could have happened. Ironically, if there was a good time, the coronavirus could come in. Well, then maybe September was it because they'd have a strong trading summer behind them. So I think the lag effect of this, Gary, as distinct from the previous recession is then while things got difficult, there were contractions and many people went out of business. Businesses were still open and the tills were still ringing. And that's the danger that this one has. We're in unknown territory, really. 
I suppose that is the conversation that the hospitality and tourism industry is going to be the slowest to recover. And of course, if, you know, how can a pub open tomorrow if social distancing still has to be implemented? And, you know, nothing really can happen in terms of solving social distancing until there's a vaccine found. And although probably every university in the world is trying to find a vaccine, they still predict it could be 18 to 24 months until it's found which means how many of those businesses will actually be able to open in two years' time. Yeah, no, and it's a very fair point. And I think there's much great work being done, first of all, in terms of trying to solution this and around the vaccines. But when you look at the commentary from the World Health Organization and you look at the process that any drug or any new drug goes through, or even around getting FDA approval, all right, well, you know, there'll be there'll be short circuits and there'll be um, exceptions made in terms of this. But still, they're can't risk run the risk of putting a drug out into the market that has unforeseen consequences and side effects so this is not going to be a quick solution um, this is a longer term view in terms of your piece around pubs and, and hotel bars the vintners federation themselves actively came out and said with the initial layer of restrictions that you know there there still was up to 100 people could be in a pub and i know we'd seen the iconic footage of one pub which was thronged and people singing but by and large that's not reflective of what 99 percent of the vintners were trying to do but how do you have if you and i went into the pub how are you going to be two meters apart shouting up and down the counter at each other and and everybody else in the same space as well it's just not practical so I think it'll be a combination of bits in some way. I know some are of the view that the the two meter piece is an overstretch and that when this gets to a certain point in terms of reduction of spread that, you know, one meter is probably adequate and there'll be narratives around that. But still, the likes of the pubs, as you know, on any Friday or Saturday night in, in a pub down Key Street or Shop Street, the atmosphere is amazing. There's music, people gather, people meet in doorways. And the challenge with that is they've admitted themselves they're not really going to be able to adhere to the social distancing. So this is not going to be a quick fix solution. And you will have businesses that have stock sitting there at the moment that will run by their sell-by date. I know some are renegotiating with their suppliers, trying to say, right, well, what can you know, what can you take back? But who can they sell it to? So in essence, it's wasted stock. And it's it's quite a minefield. And that's one bit, Gary, that, you know, in our conversations as, as a chamber, we're talking about a business recovery program and we're beginning to have those conversations sector by sector in terms of, well, what does recovery look like for you? Some will get out of the blocks a little quicker. I think restaurants, if I was to look at something being optimistic, I know I'm craving, as are many, I think, for a time to come when you can ring your local restaurant and say, oh, God, it'll be great. Can I have a table for two? I think the likes of restaurants could manage it a little easier because they can reduce the amount of tables. So you might end up paying more for your meal, but you're in a socially distanced or acceptable socially distanced space. So they may come back a little quicker because there will be a willingness to attend to go to those. I know some hotels are of the view that if they restrict capacity, you know, some are advertising, hoping that bookings will come in in June, but they're still not sure will they even be able to honour them. But there is an effort to say, well, listen, if we have 100 rooms, even if we sell 30 rooms and charge a certain price point, that puts revenue through our operation again, and we operate people to the dining room on a phased basis. So all these discussions are happening, and I think it's great to see people are being creative, but it's certainly not going to be simple. If I be devil's advocate then, Kenny, I mean, if cases are as low as they are in Galway, there's less than 300 cases in Galway at the moment, and the population of Galway is 258,000 people. 
how low does it need to get before we can actually start reopening businesses and get the economy up and going again? That's a really difficult question. And I know it's something that the Department of Health are grappling with. Uh, They see what's happening then in other locations. So we know in our colleagues in the US, there is a move that, listen, the solution shouldn't be worse than the problem itself. And the economy is, President Trump didn't say more important, but he did certainly imply that that there's a balancing act to be done. Uh, We look at our colleagues in the UK who, it's fair to say, misjudged it at the beginning and they've gone for another three-week extinction now. It comes down, Gary, what value do you put on, I suppose, even one death is too many, but at the same time, one friend of mine is a GP and talked about the fact that many thousands of people do die each year of the flu. And to what extent will this be treated in the same way as not in terms of the severity of it as the flu, but in terms of the mortality rates. So I think there will be a statistical balance that the government will come to where that decision will be made. But even with that, I think there will be the, the notion of going to a meeting or going to an event and hugging and shaking hands and all those things. People will have to be practical as well in terms of their own personal behaviours. Uh, so I do see maybe not on the 5th of May when the next announcement comes, but maybe in a, in a period after that, within, within a month after that, there will be some effort by the government to return to some degree of business as usual. I think I called it unusual business as usual, which is a contradiction in itself. But there will be a move that way. But there's a bit of work to do yet around the numbers. And I think particularly once we see the the challenges at the moment focused on the nursing homes and, and care centres, Now, if there's a good upside to that, it is that they have at least isolated where the challenges are and they're now putting resource into it. So certainly in the conversations that we had yesterday with department officials and indeed with the heads of the local authorities, another couple of weeks of containment will certainly give us a lot more idea of where we're going. Yeah. And when I mentioned the the amount of cases as well, to be open and transparent, a relation of ours actually passed away last week from the coronavirus. So not trying to say that it doesn't exist or to diminish the number of cases that have been confirmed, but it does make one wonder, you know, how low the numbers have to be before we can get the economy happening again. And I suppose in terms of what you mentioned about Trump there, I think Trump's fear is that if Asia is the first economy to recover, that he fears that they will actually take global economic power because they will be the first ones in recovery. That's what I feel could be Trump's fear. And that's why he's trying to get America open for business again. Uh, I certainly don't disagree with you in that. I think there's, uh, if if we're looking at, and and without doing an introspective on on President Trump, but if we look at his um, area of expertise and his area of pride over time, it's always been business and the economy. I think any anybody looking back on Trump's performance on societal values or social values, uh, he'll never be lining up for awards. But if I talk to my my friends and indeed to businesses, I've been lucky enough to be in the States a couple of times this year under his stewardship, whether some say it was the legacy of the groundwork done by Obama, whoever is right, I don't know. But under his stewardship, certainly the economy seems to be thriving. Employment was proving very strong and a lot liked his tax packages. 
in terms of in the country. Now, many com- many US companies around the world weren't so mad about the tax packages, but his focus was making sure that there was a strong economy in the US. And that has been his singular issue. And I think now he's looking at the fact that the economy has, I won't say stopped because they've had very haphazard implementation of the restrictions. There are certain states that were still operating on a business as usual basis nearly. I think about nine were, were still not even closed. Um, and his fear is that this economy, which is his absolute pride and joy, was stalling and that that can't happen. And I think it was an interesting conversation that I listened to one evening where he he set out his reasons in terms of, you know, the the solution cannot be worse than the problem and and the reasoning behind it. And if you took solely an economic argument, then you could understand some of the merits on that. The challenge is thousands of people are still dying in New York and in other states, and he's going to, to struggle in balancing that. And I think this is where the narrative this week around the World Health Organization and that the US is a victim of the World Health Organization's positioning. I think that's where that's coming from in terms of trying to defend part of the problem. And you're right, there is this constant battle that has been there for years between uh, two perceived superpowers. The challenge is China has contracted and really China, the headlines this morning, even on the world news, is that China really has never experienced a contraction and a recession like this, certainly not in the in the memory of many of the industrialists that's there. So for now, Trump, I don't think has, has much to worry about. The world is, is struggling to bounce back. And I think there's an, an interesting hidden bit behind all of this as well. And it comes back to the age old piece, Gary, on oil. And, you know, a lot of people are looking at the price of the pumps and the stock market collapse and attributing it to coronavirus, a big piece of what has happened in the background is a war over oil between the US, the Middle East and Russia. And there's a bit of a, a bit of a game there as well that has had a huge impact in terms of stock prices and the prices at the pumps. So there's there's two big economic wars going on at the moment. Uh, I do believe your, your synopsis around Mr. Trump, he will, obviously his focus is to November. Um, and in the meantime, it's important to him that he gets the economy back going again, because if it's not, then that has been his singular point of pride to talk about to the electorate. Uh, he certainly doesn't want to be entering those elections in November with the unemployment rate the way it is now. And that, unfortunately, is maybe more of a motivator than other other means. That's a great point, Kenny. We'll just bring it back to the people before we finish up. And something that I've been hearing a lot from people when I might meet them going out for my morning stroll is the line of, sure, look it, we're all in it together. And I think when we feel we are all in the same situation, it keeps people sane. But it will change when we won't all be in the same boat and people will start recovering better. Other people will start noticing more difficulties in their financial situation or whatever. How do you think we can maintain sanity when change starts coming in and people end up in different positions in society when the recovery, in inverted commas, returns. It's a very fair point and it's something we had an extensive um, council meeting at Galway Chamber earlier this week and this this came up as a topic in terms of the thousands and the hundreds of thousands of people that have joined the live register. Some of those will return to work in, in as normal a fashion as possible maybe not on the salaries they were on and in in the roles that they were in, but some won't. And the challenge for us in in this 
And it's a cliche that you see sometimes on social media and around the world, but it's something I really do believe in. Life is not happens to you, but how you react to it. And I had a conversation with Mary Rogers in Portershed this morning on this very topic. And it's about saying, right, for the people at the moment, we're all in the same boat because people are in their homes and some are at work, but in restrictive circumstances. There's a huge amount of content online. There's a huge amount. If we look even in the West, the likes of the, the Regional Skills Net and the Regional Skills Forum, the amount of online learning that's there at the moment for people to absorb to number one, do the learning, but number two, gain qualifications. There's a lot of support through the local enterprise office and indeed through the Department of Social Protection. And you've got the likes of Patricia Hines in the intro office who has done fantastic work in terms of engaging the community and trying to show people that give people hope. I think one of the the key things on this is if you give people hope, you give them the ammunition and the the tools that they need to upskill and learn as much as they can during this time and also gain that sense of perspective that yes this is this is crap but as you say it's crap for everyone then they're in a far better position straight away because when the jobs market reopens and it will like at the moment there are companies in Galway still recruiting and looking for staff granted they're in certain specialisms and technical areas and in the data space etc but that gives me hope in terms that there will be a normalization and people will be taking on staff it'll be important for those who are now displaced to be able to say well actually in that time of lockdown when i had two months where i was unemployed these are the things i did i went on and i retrained in excel I retrained in public speaking. I did webinars. I did something progressive. I volunteered. Um, I did whatever it is I could do to try and keep my mind alert and refresh myself. I think that's what's going to be able to differentiate between those who will bounce well out of this and who will struggle coming out of this. It's that whole notion now of keep your mind active, absorb as much information as you can, keep a sense of perspective, this will pass. And I think for many particularly those displaced and those disadvantaged employees who are highly skilled and have years of experience. There is that challenge that after this, that experience may not be needed as much as it was. So you need to reinvent yourself. And that goes for me and for everybody else as well. We're not sure where all this is going to to lead us in six months time. There was a time a month ago when I had never used Zoom in my life or did a webinar or delivered a webinar. And we're now at a point where I'm happy out sharing slides and breaking out people into different teams and online meetings, uh, still nervously doing so, but doing so. And I think uh, going back to the piece I mentioned earlier about Paddy McDermott's article, you know, there will be some people during this time who will have driven change. There will be some who will have observed the change and there will be some who will have said, oh, what happened there? And the challenge for everyone, I think, is just to make sure that you're in the pot where you're either observing it and understanding it, or you're able to influence and drive it. And that's for yourself as well as your business. Listen, Kenny, thanks a million for joining us on Gary Talks today. The the work uh, that the Chamber has been doing since I've been a member for the last few years, I always thought was phenomenal. And you were a great voice for businesses, especially small businesses in Galway and the surrounding area. But you've really shone and uh, excelled in what you do over the last few months since this crisis came. So thank you and well done for all the fantastic work that you and your staff at Galway Chamber have been doing, not only over the last number of years, but especially over the last few weeks. Thank you, Gary. It's a pleasure. And thank you for the comments. 
Thanks again to Kenny Deary, CEO of Galway Chamber, for joining us on Gary Talks. If you want to join the conversation, if you want to take part in a podcast, you can contact us on our GK Media social media channels, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn. Gary Talks is also on Instagram now, so you can check in there. Or if you're on WhatsApp, you can get us on plus three five three nine one five six four eight seven zero. I'll talk to you again next week. Take care.